And the letter started out, you have to stop the people who are stealing medication and replacing it with beans. And the doctor gave her a prescription that she filled at the hospital. And she went home. And she opened up the bottle. And it looked to her like they were pinto beans. And she said, but who am I to question pharmacist, a doctor, or the FDA? So I took the beans every dose, every day for about a week. Corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. On this episode of Fraud in America, we're going to take a close look at the False Claims Act whistleblower case against GlaxoSmithKline, or GSK. On today's show, our guest, Ms. Cheryl Eckerd-Meads, was the whistleblower in that case. In 2002, GSK sent Ms. Meads to Cedra, Puerto Rico, to oversee the remediation of the manufacturing plant after the site received a warning letter from the FDA. Ms. Meads reported that the Cedra plant's water system was contaminated, that drugs were being made in unsterile conditions, and that drugs of different strengths were being mixed in the same bottle. Ms. Meads urged GSK managers to take decisive action, and she made a full report to the GSK Compliance Department but they took no action. Instead, she was fired in May of 2003. A few months later, in October of 2003, Ms. Meads reported the conditions at the plant to the FDA in San Juan, Puerto Rico, which subsequently executed search warrants. Ms. Meads' whistleblower case was filed in February of 2004. GSK ultimately settled this case and agreed to pay $750 million to settle criminal and civil allegations. This settlement took place in October of 2010. This settlement was the first time the False Claims Act had been successfully used to hold a drug maker accountable for violations of manufacturing standards. And as part of the settlement, Ms. Meads received a record-settling whistleblower reward. On today's episode of Fraud in America, we go beyond the numbers by talking with Miss Meads and her whistleblower attorney, Miss Leslie Skillen of the national whistleblower law firm, Getnick and Getnick. Cheryl is a, a, a wife, a mother, a grandmother, a retired chemist, a clean water advocate, a change maker, a friend. She's joined uh, by Leslie Skillen, uh, her uh, longtime uh, attorney with Getnick and Getnick, uh, originally from Australia, now lives in New York City, although she lives elsewhere sometimes, just to make me jealous, uh, somewhere a lot warmer. Uh, Cheryl and Leslie, thank you for joining us today as we walk down the last, I mean, this dates back 20 years, dating back to 2002, whenever you ventured down from North Carolina to Cedra. You know, I opened this show uh, going in, I talked about some of the numbers of this case that we're going to talk about. And, you know, they're big numbers, $750 million civil and criminal uh, settlement. We talked about going into this show. Uh, the whistleblower reward, but this case is about a lot more than money. And they were going to get beyond the numbers and talk about the people and what this case really matters, why this case matters, why the fraud schemes that were brought uh, to light, not only in this case, but in this industry and the concerns about uh, pharmaceutical drugs, making sure that they're done according to manufacturing standards and why that's so important. And we have uh, two great people to walk us through that today. So, Cheryl, I want to start with you. So, you uh, joined GSK, I guess before that, it wasn't known as GSK, back in 1992. What drew you uh, to the job? Why, why did you uh, go down this area of quality assurance? I started off in, in a lab. I started off at Burroughs Welcome, uh, basically as an intern, and I was an organic chemist. 
And I um, actually inadvertently poisoned myself with an aniline at at five o'clock in the afternoon. It was a novel compound that I was working on. I was on my way home in traffic and I noticed I didn't feel well. And I looked in the mirror and my lips looked like two big black hot dogs. So I, I washed the chemical off with on a salt plate and the solvent took it through the glove and into my hands, knowing that it was a novel compound that had never been made before. I thought, well, what do I do? Go to Duke Hospital with my big blue lips and draw for them the compounds. Instead, I showed up at a friend's house. And I said, do not be afraid. (laughs) I've poisoned myself at work. Just sit with me until I'm okay. So I decided that um, that was just a risk. A lot of people who are organic chemists and analytical chemists have really great technique. I decided to go into quality assurance instead. When did you decide to make that change? When did you go to quality assurance? I I actually, I started off at Glaxo in the regulatory affairs department, Mm -hmm. and um, I did a bit of regulatory affairs, and I did compliance, but it was in research and development in the pilot uh, factory, so that's how I really got started, and then there was an opportunity in manufacturing that was a promotion. And it was international travel, but I switched over then into um, commercial manufacturing compliance, which was a whole different world. That's a whole different world. Were you living in North Carolina during this time? Was this uh, you were living in the research triangle? Is that That's right? right. I was, you know, uh, Glaxo had a manufacturing factory in Zebulon, North Carolina, and they had um, a huge uh, facility. In Research Triangle Park, and I lived in a house in the woods in between the two. Oh, beautiful. And then, so just to get right into kind of the heart of the matter, something happened in 2002 at the Cedra plant that caught the attention of the FDA. Can you talk about what happened? Yes, there was a merger yeah. between Glaxo Welcome and uh, SmithKline. And a new corporation was born, GlaxoSmithKline. And my um, division that I was in was changed a bit. And the factories that I had responsibility for changed. And I was given responsibility for the Cedra factory in Puerto Rico, which they determined would be the most important tablet plant for blockbuster drugs and new drug products. So I had been there a few times and the FDA came in to do an inspection and the inspection went poorly and the facility received what's called a warning letter uh, where the FDA warns you that you have significant violations at the factory. And and just uh, give everybody a you know, this isn't a mom and pop shop down in Puerto Rico. This was a huge plant, uh, number one GSK manufacturing plant in the world. 20 products worth $5.5 billion annually came out of that plant in Puerto Rico. Um, that's right. Just crazy, the size of this of this facility. Yes, that, that's right. It was, uh, it, it was a, a, a big uh, factory, um, very important to the network. You know, very, very yeah. important to the supply chain. And at that time, I believe everything was coming to the United States. Now, they were going to branch out and start sending drug product to other countries. But in the beginning, when I got involved, I believe everything came to the United States. Wow. So you were sent down there to try to figure out what was going wrong here, right? So when you went down to Cedar, what did you what did you notice? Well, there there had to be a decision made in executive management. Uh, there's a process to clear a warning letter. There's a process that goes on. And someone had to lead that process. And I had done that successfully before. And so I, would, I was asked if I would be willing to do that. And I, um, I agreed under a certain set of circumstances. I wanted to choose my own team. So I looked around 
all of the company. And I started making phone calls to people that I knew well that were very good at what they did. Some of them were validation experts. Some of them were laboratory quality assurance experts. And I started putting together a team and everybody agreed. And before it was over, I had maybe 25 hand-selected people to help. And um, and then the the factory there in Puerto Rico also supplied maybe another 75. And so we had a team of a, about 100. And we had a very short period of time to what our agreement with the FDA is that we were going to diagnose all of the problems at the factory. Because when the FDA comes in, it's basically a snapshot in time. And no one knows a factory more than the company. So our obligation in our initial conversations with the FDA was we're going to put together a warning letter recovery team. You know, we're going to break it down according to what's called the quality of system. And we're going to diagnose all of the problems. And then we're going to be honest with you. We're going to tell you what our problems are. And then we're going to put together a plan to recover so that we will be in compliance again. Wow, 100 people. That's quite a team that descended down on Puerto Rico. I think I had seven weeks to diagnose all of the processes, all of the drugs, the entire factory. We had about seven weeks. So we were working seven days a week. We were getting there early, staying late, working a lot. Did you have, so you had some kind of indication there was something wrong, obviously, since there was this warning letter. When you got down there, what was your immediate reaction or or concerns that caught your eye? It was difficult because I was an outsider Mm -hmm. and it was very difficult to get the facility to work with us. Um, We brought in our team leaders and it was taking too long for them to get workspace and and, and other help and desks and all of that. There was just a pushback, in my opinion. It was just a pushback on our, our, our being there. And eventually, executive management got uh, more involved. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had a meeting with the FDA that I attended. The GlaxoSmithKline executives introduced me at that meeting and said that I would be leading this recovery team. Mm -hmm. And after that meeting was over, we had a telephone conference with the other executives higher up in in the United States. And I shared my concerns and that Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting the help that I needed. And and things started to improve at that time. Uh, Let me just jump in here, Jeb, and and, uh, say something about Cheryl's stature in the company at this point. Basically, she was a star. She was um, on a short list of people who were um, tapped for promotion. Um, she, at this point, this was 2002, late 2002, um, she had a regulatory background, as she mentioned, so she knew the regulations about drug manufacturing, and she dealt extensively with the FDA. She also had the chemistry degree, so she understood the science of drug making, and she'd also taken the trouble to do courses in operating the manufacturing equipment, which is not something that quality people always do. Um, So all of this expertise factored into how she reacted to what she saw was happening at CEDRA. And when she says she was supervising 100 people, um, there was no one else who was better qualified to do this job than Cheryl. Um, And I think it also is informative in terms of um, how good she was that the company at some point in the not-too-distant future, decided they didn't need her services anymore, and it really had nothing to do with um, with her competence. Was there this sense that the people that worked there, they viewed you as like an intruder, that you were stepping into their world? It- it's, it's hard to say. I mean, now, yeah. in hindsight, <laughs> there were things that there were secrets mm. to be kept. Right. And, you know, I'd been to factories all over the world and worked with so many different people in factories. And I understood that there would be feelings that were a little raw. 
at mm-hmm. having these secrets exposed, but uh, it was something that just had to happen. And and I started investigating myself mm-hmm. as I led the teams and led the the groups. I was also walking around the factory looking up information on my own. And I, I like to call it turning over stones. You know, I would just mm-hmm. look under and every single rock I looked under was a, a frightening information when it comes to the safety and, and the health of patients. And what were some of the drugs uh, that were manufactured there that you were especially concerned about? Well, um, there was Coreg which is um, for congestive heart failure, a very potent drug. Um, There was uh, Paxil um, for uh, depression. Paxil oral suspension was written up in the uh, warning letter. It was, and so there were the the products that were spoken to in the warning letter, but we had to look at everything else. So we had Avandamet, Avandia, Paxil, Paxil-controlled release, um, Ecotrin, aspirin, and over-the-counter. Wow. Uh, we had Stelazine, Thorazine, the injectable drug that was for cancer patients um, to help them with nausea and vomiting. Mm. We'll, we'll link up to the uh, the 60 Minutes piece uh, that Cheryl did after this case broke, and it talks about some of the problems with the drugs, uh, or at least the manufacturing of these drugs during this time. Um, which one bothered you the most? Is the, is the, you know, the one that left, kept you up at nighttime? Oh, oh honestly, they, they all did. I had never yeah. seen a situation. I, I thought I'd seen it all. I had never seen a situation like this one, but there were certain situations in the, in the 60 minutes interview. I, I, I started looking at complaints from the field. So there are systems where doctors and hospitals and, and, and even patients can report um, drug problems, issues. And there was one complaint that I ferreted out. Um, A grandmother went into a pharmacy and she opened up, it was a a bottle that was packed out and sealed in our factory. So she opened it up in front of the pharmacist and she said, "I, I knew it. I knew it. Last month, the medication was one color and now it's another color. And um, I think she said last month it was, you know, it's supposed to be yellow. Last month it was pink. And my grandson, he's just been so sick. I think the little boy was eight years old. It's been years now, but I believe the little boy was eight years old. And I, I, oh, I'm going to cry. I had a small child myself. What we know now is children of that age shouldn't take Paxil. But this little boy was on Paxil, and it is my belief that he was being given a different Paxil product that was um, too much, uh, too strong for a child his size. So no wonder he was sick. Mm, Heartbreaking. Um, so, Cheryl, what did you do next after you, you recognized that, wait a second, we got a bigger issue here than what the FDA's recognized? What did you do after that? I always, I don't know if I'm naive. I'm not sure. I, I always believed in the past, before the merger, when I found problems, I could go to upper, you know, to the executives and they were very supportive. And they asked my opinion and they asked for my advice and we worked through situations together. And in this particular case, I went to the vice president of quality for North America and I told him about this situation with this complaint. And, and you know, we all started to understand that the brokenness of this factory was much greater. But when I told that vice president about this complaint, he put his hands over his face 
and he put his head down and he said, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it just got worse from there. So, Leslie, uh, you probably remember the phone call where she called and, and explained all the problems, uh, the long laundry list of problems that were happening. Can you talk about you know, some of the problems that she had highlighted with you at that time? Well, I certainly remember the mix-ups, um, which were definitely definitely not limited to the, the Paxil mix-up that she just spoke about. Um, I, I recall her telling me about the sterile facility or the allegedly sterile facility, um, where they made chytral, the injectable product, um, the chemo drug that she mentioned. Uh, they also made Bactroban there, which is an ointment that's used on babies. Uh, and they were going to shut down the, set the facility because it was, it was just so old and outdated. Um, so they didn't want to spend the money to fix it, but they kept making drugs there for several years before they shut it down. Um, and they kept finding microorganisms in the products. Um, the government's criminal case talks about finding microorganisms in um, chytral that were described as what's called TNTC. And that stands for too numerous to count. Um, and when they filled the Bactroban ointment into the tubes, uh, in order not to what they described as waste the product, they had operators who were literally hand scraping the insides of the tanks. So they got everything out of the tank. Like, you know, when you're scraping a bowl with cake batter in it or something. Um, also the water that was used in the products, it's called water for injection, um, was, was contaminated. The system was old and it was contaminated. Um, it was described by a, a PhD scientist who was on Cheryl's team as um, a minefield of bug breeding grounds. Um, he also described the validation of the cultural product as death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and there were insects and there were lizards that were allowed to enter the manufacturing area. So, you know, there were a lot of problems, as you might say. I ask, I finally, uh, there was a pivotal day where I flew back to the United States to meet with the woman who was in charge of quality worldwide. I didn't have an appointment. I'll never forget, I, I wear traveling clothes, but I didn't want to go into the, this woman's office in traveling clothes. So I, I changed uh, clothes and put on a suit in the uh, airport bathroom and jumped in my car and went to Research Triangle Park as fast as I could with evidence in my hand that um, was uh, pretty upsetting. And she wasn't at the office, but her secretary called her and, and I spoke with her and I explained to her what I had in my hand. I asked her to stop all products that day from shipping off of the dock and that we needed to call the FDA and um, work very closely with them to, um, we needed to recall product. And I warned her that day that if she didn't take my advice, that we would certainly get what's called a consent decree. Mm-hmm. And I'll let, um, Leslie, explain to you. Would you like to explain what a consent decree is, Leslie? Um, sure, I can. I can do that. Uh, a consent decree is basically where the FDA says um, they go to court and and they basically get an injunction that uh, compels the company to clean up their act in a facility, and it typically involves the hiring of a third party um, consulting company to. Um, oversee the remediation of the facility and basically to um, make sure that nothing goes out the door without the third party's uh, endorsement. Uh, and, that, and that's what happened here. And, and sometimes it also um, involves specific products being taken off the market. Uh, and in, in this case, actually, 
the FDA had already seized uh, billions of dollars worth of this of, of product from this factory that it removed from the market. Basically, the court system takes takes over for mm-hmm. for the pharmaceutical industry because these drugs, a lot of these drugs were so important that they're they're needed to be supplied to the market. Um, in some drugs, you know, you titer up, you titer down. So you give an initial dose and then you increase the dose and you increase the dose while the patient's body becomes uh, accustomed to it. So you can't just stop everything. Um, so instead, what you do is you have consultants that come in and look over every single piece of paper and and then the consultant says it is okay to release this batch. It is a very, very expensive process. And you raise this, uh, these concerns to her. What was her reaction once you laid out everything you discovered? She told me that she had complete faith in the vice president of North America, the one who had said, oh my God, oh my God. And that together they would take care of it. And at that time, did you believe her? I believed her because I didn't understand why anybody could see the evidence that I had in my hand mm. and not call the FDA, you know, in her position mm. and in the vice president's position of North America. I didn't believe that anyone would not stop shipments. So I went back to work, which I was asked to do, and I waited for the news that the FDA had been. I I did not have at my level in the company. I wasn't allowed to call the FDA myself. Um, it had to be done above me. And I believed that they would. So I went back to work and waited for the news that they had made that phone call. You were waiting for the news to break and it never happened. Did you realize the company had decided just to move forward and ignore what happened? Well, I was in a situation where I had a small child and and at that time, Mm -hmm. I was a a single mother going through a divorce with a small child. Eventually, I went to my divorce attorney and said, I can't I can't keep this job. It, it started making me sick. I couldn't sleep at night. I was so concerned. But I, but I kept on working and doing my best. And every single day, the story was just more tragic. So I started having clandestine meetings in places off-site with uh, employees, and they would share information. There were a lot of good people who worked there who knew what right looked like, and they were not happy with what was happening. But one person was um, from the UK, and he had a PhD, and I had a lot of respect for him. And he said, Cheryl, you know, why do you think I bring in my own development team from the UK when I develop these drugs? Because this factory is broken. This is not a, a Glaxo factory. This is a SmithKline factory, and it's held together by scotch tape. He said, you know, you wake up every morning with your teams, and you give them tasks to do. And he said, at the end of every day, you check for progress, and you don't find progress because you're polishing, and pardon my language, it's just a direct quote, you're polishing a turd. He said, you pass it out, you give people a polishing cloth, you think there's a diamond in there, and that you're going to scrape up all, off all the mess and you're going to polish up the diamond. And when they hand it back to you at the end of the day, there's no change. I am cleaning up the story a little bit. There's no change. You sniff mm-hmm. it, you look at it, there's no change. So the next day, you try something different and you hand out half the team gets a polishing cloth and half of the team gets knives to whittle with. And you make no progress because it's still a turn. And he said, this is what you have to understand about the situation you're in, Cheryl. There is no diamond here. 
it's turd all the way through. And why, looking back, why do you think that happened? What, I mean, this was defective at its core. So you would think that, I mean, I'm guessing money drives some of this, right? But so why did this happen to begin with? You know, my husband, who also came from the industry, he says that people are corrupted by the desire to please. Some mm. people are corrupted by power and money. And then other people are corrupted because they just want to to please their bosses. And, and it was a combination of these things. But at the top of this company was corruption and a, and a whole lot of money, just a whole lot of money. I'm always struck by these cases, you know, large companies, a lot of people, uh, clearly know that something wrong is happening and so few people step forward. So why do you think Cheryl was the only person to step forward in this case? Um, well, in this case, we're talking about drug manufacturing and in the, in the drug business, there's a tension between quality and profits, um, which means that, you you know, they've got to meet supply deadlines and, and drugs don't sit around in warehouses because they eventually expire. Um, so what you see is companies making these supply commitments and if, and there's not a lot of wiggle room for schedule changes. Um, so when a quality person like Cheryl says, you can't release that batch or, um, you know, God forbid, you've got to shut down production, that's kind of, you know, a crisis. Um, and it takes a very strong quality person to stick to their guns. Um, so to speak. Um, and there weren't very many quality people uh, like Cheryl. Um, Cheryl was very strong and very principled, as you know, is obvious when you talk to her. Um, and in fact, after she was fired, things got worse because um, what happened was the site director was literally um, harassing and intimidating the quality people to get them to back off. Um, and that's all detailed in the in the government's criminal case. Um, and as you mentioned, this factory was making $5.5 billion worth of uh, a product every year. These were blockbuster drugs. And on top, on top of that, um, there were these tremendous tax benefits to the company from being in Puerto Rico. So it wasn't going to be a good career move to be a spoiler. We can go back for for one second. So you didn't stop, um, which I always find admirable about your story. A lot of people, you know, say, you know, I tried or I I told my next person up in the chain of command, and you know, it just it's out of my pay grade now. Why did you keep going? Because it was my job. Quality executives, quality staff. They're not in pharmaceutical factories because pharmaceutical factories want them there. They're there because the federal government has mandated that we are there. And you walk the wall so people can stay safe at night because the people taking medication, they're innocent victims. They can't protect themselves against this. I once had a complaint from another factory, by the way, and, and it was just a counterfeit. But if you don't mind me telling the story, it's... Yeah, please. A woman, a very well-educated woman, wrote a letter to the complaint department at a different factory. And, and the letter started out, you have to stop the people who are stealing medication and replacing it with beans. And the letter went on to say that she had a particular medical problem and she went to the doctor and the doctor gave her a prescription that she fit, filled at the hospital. And she went home and she opened up the bottle and it looked to her like they were pinto beans. And she said, dried pinto beans. And she said, but who am I to question a pharmacist, a doctor or the FDA? So I took the beans every dose, every day for about a week. 
And my son stopped by. This was an elderly lady. My son stopped by to check on me. And she said she pulled the bottle out and she showed it to him. And she said, son, are these pills or are these beans? And he said, mother, those are pinto beans. And and so she took them back to the pharmacy. But it just shines a light on the problem. Patients take what's in the bottle. 100%. And it was my job to protect people like that lady. It was my job and my heart to protect people like the little boy. And so I continued working and believe it or not, you know, the teams did start doing diagnosis and they did start putting together plans for recovery because there was going to come a time shortly where the FDA would send back in an investigator and look over the recovery plans and either lift the warning letter on promises that we would continue, we would continue to communicate with them and we would fix the broken systems. And and that time was coming. Well, it came and the FDA came back Plans were shown and the FDA lifted the warning letter. Wow. And I had been there for a long time and my daughter was in North Carolina with her dad. And I just went back home for a few days. And then I got a phone call that I was being replaced because recovery wasn't over. It was still only starting. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I still believed that I was going to be able to fix this. And I didn't agree with the way that things were happening. But, but I believed that I was a person of integrity and honesty and that I was going to continue to fight to fix this. And I got a phone call that I had been removed as uh, the the team leader, you know, the warning letter recovery leader. And instead, they were replacing me with a man at that factory who had worked there for years, who was actually part of the problem. And that my new role would be to just fly in occasionally and provide um, some oversight. Amazing. This is the point I went to my divorce attorney. And I said, I've got a real problem and I don't know what to do. And and I told him and he said, whatever you do, don't quit your job. If you quit your job in the middle of, you know, a custody discussion, Mm -hmm. then it's not helpful. You have to keep your job. He said, look for every single avenue to fix it. But I know you feel like giving up. Don't give up. And so that led to what is the April 2nd report. April 2nd, 2003, I I got into a squabble with my direct supervisor. And I just said, "I, I can't I can't do this. You know, what's happening here is so wrong that I can't do this. And then she blurted out, what do you expect me to do about it? And I said, let me write a report to upper management detailing the history of this factory and the risks that we face right now, this moment. And in that report, I said that this factory is going to get a consent decree. And it went to upper management, I mean, to the top. Mm-hmm. And ask me how many phone calls I got, Jeb. How many? None. Zero. Wow. Not one of the people who got that report that detailed all mm. of these tragedies, yeah. not one of them called me for more information. Not one of them said, hey, thanks, let's fix this. Mm. It was radio silence. At, at some point, 
someone did call you and you were terminated, right? At, at some point after, soon after this came out, right? That's right. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, when it became clear that I wouldn't stop and that mm-hmm. I wouldn't be quiet, I, I was given amazing offers. You know, they were, they gave me an award. They, they gave me a bonus. They asked me what, you know, now that that's over, what can we do for you? What would you like now? What is your next step? Because we, you know, there was mention of, of allowing me to get an MBA at Cambridge with my bills paid and, you know, all, all of these things. And, and I, I just couldn't, even back then, I just couldn't be bought. It just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so when nothing would work for me except the truth and, and fixing the factory, then all of a sudden I went from being the superstar who was being patted on the back to, um, I was, uh, marginalized. I was in trouble. I was, uh, things I was being excluded from, um, investigations. Um, and that was, that was the, that was the beginning of the end for me. So you did something I find remarkable. Um, even after you left the company, you didn't stop. Um, you called the FDA, you were still pushing things inside the company. Like you, why? Yeah, first I, first I triggered a compliance an internal compliance investigation. I actually mm-hmm. did not know that there was a compliant unit. And and Leslie, your you and your partner in your firm had had a previous case that that Glaxo was it yeah that Glaxo ended up being named in, and that's what led to a um, a compliance agree an initial compliance agreement. Can you talk about that? Just a second. Yes, that's correct, Cheryl. There was a uh, settlement um, uh, involving uh, with the company, I think, early in 2003, involving Medicaid best price issues. And there was a corporate integrity agreement as part of that settlement, um, which had the usual provisions that corporate integrity agreements have about properly investigating complaints by employees and having a proper functioning compliance program. Um, so that was just probably maybe a month, six weeks before they fired Cheryl. So I called the CEO. I thought, I've just not gotten to the right people. And there was um, there's a, a lawsuit um, or a case that was the Ditterwhite case, I believe. And in that case, the judge ruled that the head of the company is ultimately responsible to ensure that compliance occurs, that that's where it stops at the head of the company. So I thought, I'll, I'll contact him and, and I'll let him know that he's the one who is responsible. And his um, secretary answered the phone and she was a little bit snippy. She said, <laughs> Employees can't call the CEO. So the next thing I did was I called chief counsel, the chief counsel's office. If the lawyer knew, he would do the right thing. Because back then I thought all lawyers were honest people. So I called uh, his office and he was actually flying over the Atlantic Ocean and I couldn't reach him. But his secretary was, was nice. And I explained to her the details of the situation. I mean, we had at that factory, I can't believe I still say we, they had at that factory the wrong product in the wrong bottles. They had mixed up product everywhere where, you know, the wrong strength, the wrong product. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And so she gave me a phone number of a man who was in charge of the compliance department, the new compliance department, because they had the agreement that they happened Mm -hmm. to have written as a result 
of the case that Leslie had just settled. They had just settled. And um, and I, I called, and I, I'm one of those people, I'm going to go church lady on you. You know, we all have our own sets of beliefs. And I said a little prayer. There's something in the Bible about laying out the fleece. And, you know, God, if this is what you want me to do when I wake up in the morning, let the ground be dry, but the fleece be wet. And so I had a, a, a conversation with God and I said, God, I am, I, I just don't know what to do anymore. If you want me to keep on fighting, let this vice president answer his own telephone. No vice president at GSK back then, in my experience, answered their own telephone. He answered the phone. Wow. And I had him on the phone for hours. And he was very upset by what he heard. And he was very nice and kind. He told me not to go look for another job, that he believed that I would be back to work soon. He gave me his personal cell phone. He told me not to, you know, just just hold on. And then I believed him. And then something happened. And they they were doing an investigation. They asked me to participate in a phone call. And unbeknownst to them, I had already called the FDA. I called the FDA before I called the CEO because I was just trying everything. And, um, but I was anonymous. I called uh, an investigator at the San Juan office that I had worked with. And I knew I didn't think he would recognize my voice. He didn't. And I said, I have got a real problem. And I don't know why I've called you, but there is a factory that is so dangerous. And patients are at risk. And I just, I don't know what to do about it, but I, I just, I just want you to know, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out and I'll, if you'll be patient with me, I'll call you back. And, uh, then I went through the CEO, the compliance investigation started. And I think it was on August 24th that the investigators called me and there was a telephone call and they asked me questions and it lasted for a, a long time. And at the end of that call, toward the end of that call, I said to them, you know, I have done all that I can do and now I'm relying on you mm -hmm. to put a stop to this. And one of the participants said, oh, we're just investigating it. We, we won't make that. We won't be the ones making that decision. Yeah. And then I knew that they were not going to do anything. I just knew it in my heart. Mm -hmm. And when I hung up the phone, I picked up the phone and I called Carmela, the, the FDA investigator back. Mm -hmm. And I told him everything, I told him my name and yeah. I outlined it for him. Everything. I told him everything I knew. And he um, he was just so kind. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I said, please give me just a little more time. I still believed in them, Jeb. Mm -hmm. I still mm -hmm. believed that there, that. Were, there was goodness somewhere, that there was right. goodness. And I, I said, just give me a little more time. I've triggered a compliance investigation. Uh, if they contact you, will you work with them? Will you help them? Yes. And then he said these wise words. He said, I can tell that you believe in this company. 
and that you believe that they are going to do what's right. And I want you to be prepared for a disappointment. But because of your call, I will give you time for their investigation to end. And if they don't call me and they let you know that they're not going to, I'm waiting for you to call me back. And so I keep contacting them, asking them for progress. I tell them that patients are at risk. And finally, in October, I got a call from a guy named Martin, who was part of the investigation team. And he said to me, back then, my name was Eckerd. Ms. Eckerd, I think that you're a really nice lady. And I hope that I get to work with you again in another time and another place. Mm. Um, there will be no call to the FDA. There was not going to be a call, no recalls, yeah. no stopping shipment, no changing anything. There will be no call. And his voice trembled when he was talking to me. And it just so happened, I love the way God works. It just so happened that once a year, quality worldwide would have, they would gather for their own quality symposium. And that was where they were that day. And including the man that became my husband. He was there in Portugal with them. And I called Carmela and I said, Carmelo, I just got the call. And I was weeping. You were right. I got the call. Right. They'll do nothing. But it just so happens that all of quality and compliance leadership worldwide is in Portugal right now. So if you go to this factory tomorrow, it will be junior staff there. Mm. And they may be more for, more forthcoming with you than the senior staff. And that's that's what he did. He walked into the factory the next day with quality and compliance in Portugal. And he called me back the next day and said, everything you told me is true. And I would like for you to uh, help me with a, was it a search warrant? A search warrant. I've got a judge stand, a federal judge standing by. Can you sit down now? And this phone call, my daughter was in first grade and I was taking her to school and I had the FDA on the line and they were talking to me about where to look. And it took me 25 minutes to to get my daughter to school. And that, you know, the, the mouths, the honesty of children, when yeah. she got out of the car and I'm still on the phone and she had listened to my side of it, she got out of the car and before with her book bag on and before she closed the door, she said, mommy, you go get those bad men. Oh, and she closed it. the door and skipped off to, to, to class. And um, and I did. I drew them a roadmap, and then they showed up at Research Triangle Park. They showed up in Puerto Rico. I, my understanding, I wasn't there, but my understanding is they carried out computers from from you know headquarters. They they stayed for I think several days without leaving Puerto Rico. Uh, just to round out the story for for everybody that's listening in. So in, in February of 2004, uh, Cheryl, with the assistance of her amazing attorneys at Getnick and Getnick, Leslie and Neil, they filed a False Claims Act whistleblower case uh, that eventually in 2010 settled uh, for $750 million civil and criminal. And the plant in Cedra, Puerto Rico is no longer there, right? It's now closed. It, it, it actually. It, uh, it actually um, is a different kind of factory now. And since that time, I've met the man who now owns it. Okay. So, yeah, it's a, it's like a bottling fat. You know, I think it's I, I'm not sure. But um, I, I do. Can, is it OK? Do we have time for me to quickly tell you how I met Leslie and Neil? Gatton? Yes, please. Absolutely. When the 
FDA came in and, and whoever else, marshals, I, I don't know how it worked. When they went in to the factory, all of the factories, my husband was sent home and he was punished. And I was I was told by the FDA investigator that I was working with that if the company tried to do anything to come after me, punish me, hurt me, to call him. Mm -hmm. And so when my husband was sent home for weeks, and I called uh, the FDA back, and the FDA investigator sounded so sad, he said, Cheryl, I want you to go get an attorney. That's what mm -hmm. I want you to do. Yep. And, and I didn't ask him what kind of attorney. And I sat down at my desk and there is a journal, uh, an industry journal called the Gold Sheets. And I looked down at the Gold Sheets and there was the story, an interview with Neil Getnick. And it was the case that was settled in 2003. So I picked up the phone and I called Getnick and Getnick and, and Leslie was very kind to me and they took my case. I say something about that call. Yes, please. Um, I, that was, um, I, I remember that call so well. Cheryl was very emotional for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, it was a very long call for about an hour. And um, Cheryl told me a lot of detail about what was wrong at the factory. Mm -hmm. And most of it, I didn't really understand. Yeah, <laughs> I sure, mean, sure. I do now, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but it was technical and, and um, I uh, didn't know anything about pharmaceutical manufacturing at that time. I mean, some of it was obvious, mix-ups, clearly. You can't put the heart drugs in the same bottle with the antidepressants. Um, but I, I listened to her and I made a lot of notes and, and I, I said, we'd get back to her. Uh, and I put down the phone and I, I went out to our reception desk and I said to our two receptionists, um, um, that was a real whistleblower. Mm. Because despite the fact that I didn't understand the, the, the factual issues at that, at that time, I, there was something about Cheryl that was real. Yeah. Gotcha. Cheryl, um, I, I appreciate you walking us through this story. You had the um, the whole purpose of this show, which was done in large part because of your encouragement, was to you know recognizing there's there's probably somebody out there right now, very likely listening to today's program, and they are where you were in 2003, and they're going to work every day, seeing something wrong, and and it's keeping them up at nighttime. They're they're trying to decide what to do. They may have reported it internally, and nothing's happening. What would you say to that person? I would say that it was my attorneys and Taft that kept me going through that long, dark season. And, and I would say that there is help for you, that Taft is here for you, the Taft bar is here for you. There is Somewhere there is an attorney who is willing to listen to you. And I would also suggest that they read a book. I must have read it, I don't know, a dozen times. And is the name of it Giant Killer? Giant Killers, Henry Scammell. Yes. Yes, Giant Killers. And it will show you that you are not alone. And the one thing that I've learned about whistleblowers, the thing that we share in common, there's a there's a, a book I read once, uh, Lewis Thomas, Late Night Thoughts While Listening to Mueller's Night Symphony. He's got a, an essay in there on altruism, and he believes that people are genetically, he's passed away, but he believed that people were genetically coded to be altruistic that some of us will blow up our own lives in order to, to help people that we think can't help themselves. 
and and the whistleblowers that I know that I love so much, we all seem to to share that trait. So, you know, have, go ahead, do what's right, find an attorney, have faith. Um, we, you know, we we survive it. We get through it. There's a beginning and there's an end, and you go on with your lives. And and I will tell you that. I don't, I no longer introduce myself to people as a whistleblower. I no longer feel the need to talk about it. I, we all end up broken during this process. But, but if you try, you get well and you, you, you have these emotional growth steps that are so important. And in my personal life right now, the governor of Florida has appointed me to the South Florida Water Management District Governing Board. I'm on a governing board with a, a group of wonderful people, and, and we are busily restoring the Everglades. So there is a life after the tragedy, and there's a life after the struggle, and, and the life is wonderful. And awesome. that has nothing to do with money. That has to do with doing what is right, getting through it, getting on the other side, and becoming a member of the Taft family. A life of contribution, impact, and influence. Uh, so, Leslie, as we as we start to wrap up this show, um, I'd love to ask you this this question. We're coming up on the twentieth anniversary of Cheryl being sent down to uh, Cedar Puerto Rico to find out what was happening. 20 years, two decades, and we're still talking about this case. What, what do you think the lasting legacy of this case is? I think there's a number of uh, lasting legacies. This was the first uh, case in which um, a company had to return money to the taxpayers that the government had spent on adulterated drugs. Um, there was no precedent for this case. But since then, there have been um, many cases, uh, not just drugs, but, um, but medical devices, um, pharmaceutical products made overseas, uh, fluoride tablets, IV, um, sterile IV bags. Um, so it established the False Claims Act as a, as a, um, as a way of of getting money back for taxpayers that, that was paid for products that were not fit to be on the market. Um, and with that, um, the False Claims Act legal theories have evolved. So when we did Cheryl's case, there was no False Claims Act precedent, but now there are, um, there's a very strong basis in the False Claims Act um, law for the government to go after companies for selling adulterated drugs. Um, and I think there's also a legacy in terms of um, empowering quality and compliance people. Um, I mean, they're the people that we rely on to keep companies on the straight and narrow, go whether it's um, whether it's it's adulterated drugs or whether it's um, it's it's shareholder funds or or tax money or money that's been siphoned off. Maybe it's maybe it's COVID relief money, um, and that and those people um, have a mechanism now. That there's a an established mechanism for them to stand up and say, you know, you can't be doing this um, if the company is is not listening to them. Which is which is um, not something that is uh, uncommon, unfortunately. Cheryl, thank you for doing something. Leslie, thank you for your mentorship over the years and your friendship for, for both of you guys. Thank you for spending today on Rod in America. What a story. Today we heard a firsthand account from whistleblower Cheryl Eckerd Meads and her attorney, Leslie Skillen. We heard how one person can stand up to a giant corporation. By bringing a case on behalf of the federal government, you enlist the help of private and possibly public resources. That is the power of the False Claims Act. Next week, we learn how a lone pharmaceutical representative convinced the federal government 
to start seriously investigating a drug maker. The allegations involve illegal sales and marketing practices that push doctors to prescribe a highly addictive and dangerous synthetic opioid. That happens next week on the next episode of Fraud in America. If you believe you've witnessed fraud against the government at your job or want to learn more about these important laws to combat fraud, visit fraudinamerica.com. On our website, you can find whistleblower lawyers, blogs from these expert attorneys, and more. You can also find a transcript of today's show, show notes, a way to contact our team, and a way to chip in to make sure we can keep bringing you the latest on fraud. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme music is by Connor Chaos. A big thanks to our staff and researchers of Jeb White, James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Brian Markovitz, and Max Boltman. You can learn more about them at fraudinamerica.com slash team. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund. 